Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Here's your host, General David Grange. Okay, welcome back. And we're here tonight with our last segment. And I'm fortunate to be on the phone with two gentlemen I've worked for before. You all know General Dave, but tonight we have the distinct pleasure of having Colonel Retired Mark Boyette, who was the third Special Forces Group commander and took us to Haiti on a, on a wonderful trip. And we stayed for several months and then came home and left it to other people. But we still remained in touch with the country and, of course, with each other. He's a dear friend. But he's written a wonderful book, Special Forces, A Unique National Asset, Through, With, and By, that covers special forces from soup to nuts. So, Colonel Boyett, I would just like to turn it over to you to give a short background of yourself and plug anything you want. And, of course, as I've said, we're going to include a link to the book uh, at the most advantageous site uh, in our show summary tonight. Sir, over to you. Thank you very much for having me on and uh, for talking about the book because I'm going to be quoting a lot from that as we go into this, but to follow the crowd of uh, of speakers that you have had with their expertise is pretty daunting because, uh, as you said, we went to Haiti together, but I retired prior to uh, to everything that happened over in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I never got over there. So uh, everything I have is is from people listening that you uh, had on previously, and uh, I'm stuttering a little bit. I've got a diagnosed uh, speech disturbance, according to the neurologist, but uh, I'll try to do the best I can. And, uh, yes, I've got uh, – I'm going to be quoting quite heavily from the book, uh, but thanks again for having me on. Roger, and uh, I would like to mention also that you were a principal in the early Blue Light Project, which was uh, at, at the time, for a while anyway, our only counter-terror force while Delta was starting, and people from Blue Light obviously went to Delta, but I had the good fortune since you stayed in Special Forces to work with you twice, and I have appreciated that, and it's helped me learn quite a bit, as I have from both of you gentlemen. So, Mark, would you just state your, your source of commissioning and a little bit about your experience? I know you commanded first of the first. You commanded the third Special Forces group and did so brilliantly on a real operation. How about a little more of your background? Okay, I... Uh came on active duty in 1971 as a uh, a distinguished graduate from ROTC program at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. My first tour was not to Vietnam. None of my class went to Vietnam. We all went to uh, Europe uh, and make infantry primarily, and that's what I was in my first tour of duty, and then came back to the advanced course. And ironically, uh, the way I got into special forces is I was drafted in. In 1975, uh, didn't I didn't volunteer? That was uh, un- unusual. And there was about nine people in my uh, uh, class that had not volunteered with special forces. But it was the most fascinating thing that ever happened to me, and the best thing for me personally that, that could have happened. And uh, yes, I've, I, I commanded four different, or uh, yeah, four different A teams. One of those A teams was I was one of three of the. Uh, Blue Light Assault Team Leader, team leader was in 77 to 78 when Blue Light 
stood down, pretty short lifespan, really. Uh, and then uh, did an MDT to uh, Kuwait uh, on on the law, on <laughs> 72 law. That was an interesting three-man MTT. And then they went to a war right after we left and won against the South. That was before they were uh, united. Uh, then I, I came, when I got back, I got to the 82nd, commanded an infantry uh company in the 82nd, went to Alaska, commanded another uh, Arctic infantry company for another two years up there, and then uh, pulled a quick tour as an IG and then uh, came back uh, to the Special Forces 5th Group and uh, was in 5th Group as General Guest S3 for almost two and a half years, just as his S3. Uh, got pulled by Jerry Jensen up to the Pentagon and uh, worked in the in that under the DASR at the uh, Special Operations Agency in the basement of the Pentagon. Uh, went from there then to selected for command first to first on Okinawa. Uh, came back from from that to language school and uh, Army War College. Then I was uh, picked up for uh, uh, Sid Shacknow's chief of staff, and that was uh, a wonderful experience. He's a great, great, great American, real good friend too. We had a lot. Did a lot of stuff later in his in my life and career also. Uh, then commanded the uh, third group, as you know, left out of that and went up to uh, uh, Death Ops. And then out of Death Ops, I took over as deputy commander of uh, SWIC. And uh, that's where I retired in uh, 2000 out of, out of SWIC. Great. Well, I'm going to pass you off to General Grange. He has a question for you. Dave? Okay, yes, Ranger Doug. Thank you. And welcome, Mark, to the show. You know, we're we're pretty close uh, in uh, service time. Uh, I was just a year ahead of you, and probably why I went to Vietnam. But, you know, when you think of Blue Light, I mean, I had a lot of your guys in my squadron in the unit uh, that served with you, and they spoke very highly of you, the NCOs. And that's a big deal. Uh, worked for General Shacknell as well, <laughs> and a great man. And uh, and then your experience in SWIC. I think you may have worked for Ken Borey. I did, yes. Yeah, and so, I mean, we were in Vietnam together. He was uh, kind of did a Laos thing and then back over to Vietnam, but that's where we met, and we were in fifth group together at Fort Bragg. You know, we are in the same kind of cut of cloth in a lot of those those uh, uh, units and some of the operations, so uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us tonight. I understand where you're coming from as a, as a man and a soldier. The question I have is you got a lot of UW experience, unconventional warfare, also IW, regular warfare, you know, with uh, CC and with Blue Light and FID and a bunch of other things, but the direct action. But mainly the uh, we're talking tonight about unconventional warfare, that aspect of regular warfare. You know, when I was uh, a kid, uh, my father was in the 77th at Bragg, 77th Special Forces. And we went over to Germany together on a ship, my family, my dad, and he went and joined the 10th group. That was 58 through, uh, yeah, 1958 through 61. He had a detachment there. All this detachment was made up of Eastern European, Central European, some from the, uh, from Russia as well. And the focus is really on conventional warfare. That's what they did. And the 10th group, as you recall then, uh, you know, they had a, Trojan horse array didn't have a, a patch, a background patch on the uh, on the beret. And uh, 
it really looked like an occupational warfare unit. I used to go on reconnaissance with my father as a kid, uh, walking the, the Alps there in Bavaria at Bad Tolls. And uh, most of the people were sp- speaking most of the time. We weren't even speaking English. But uh, they took language school in Omer Amergau and uh, down here by Garmisch. And uh, we're really focused on unconventional warfare. Now, we went into Iraq and, and uh, Afghanistan for 20 years. A lot of the unconventional warfare kind of shifted more to like, a lot of direct action. Maybe maybe a good thing, not a bad thing. I don't want to get into that tonight. Killing bad guys is a good thing. Eliminating them from uh, society and the people that are oppressed that uh, Special Forces defends with their motto, Crystal Libera. But what I want to, what right now, I just came back from Central Asia doing a business trip. And uh, with what happened in Afghanistan with our departure uh, and everything kind of transitioned on 1 September, there's been a noticeable uh, aggressive activities on geopolitical means by Russia, China, Iran, and Pakistan. Pakistan's kind of falling apart because of what's going on. And then in the north, you got stands. Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kurmanistan, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a big dance going on of who's doing what. Now, the Taliban's trying to take over that country. And they're having kind of the same kind of problem that, that we had uh, when we drew down a lot of the forces uh, in the in a, uh, Afghan military. They're having, a, they're having a hard time controlling the populace. They're having a hard time providing civil affairs type things that people expect from a governing authority, elected or not. And Al-Qaeda just received about 15,000 replacements. ISIS, which now Afghanistan is the the home, the sanctuary for ISIS, and they're resurging big time. ISK, Taliban, Haqqani Group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to be a good chance Taliban's having a problem. Now, what's happening is, as you probably know, and I've been following this very closely, the northern NRF, led by Massoud, and you recall the Lion of Panjur, the old father of Massoud, who was assassinated by the help of the Soviets. His son is the leader. He's working with the vice president of the former government of Afghanistan, and there's still, if you think about it, the recognized, well, the, the vice president is leader of Afghanistan because the Taliban have not been recognized except for a few countries. They're doing pretty well. They're getting uh, some support from some other Western countries and other countries. I won't get into that. And there, they, they took most of the Panjir Valley back that they lost initially with the help of the Pakistanis. And they're ISI in, in particular, and they're uh, continuing around Bagram now, air base. And they're giving the Taliban hell, ambushes, raids at night, good uh, special ops stuff. And they're doing the best they can with the resources they have. Now, it seems to me, Mark, that this is a perfect setting for unconventional warfare 
work as we know it from JFK at, at uh, Fort Bragg School, schoolhouse. I can't think of right now, except, well, there's a few other places that it's ideal as well, but this is an ideal location, situation, and it's even in the moral domain of what we probably should do since everything went to hell when we left and we opened the gates of hell in the region for UW operation. Now, setting that backdrop for you, with your experience, not a political answer, Republican, Democrat, that's not what we're looking for, but what is your feel? If you were the advisor to the President of the United States, whoever that person may be, and he called you up there from JFK and said, Mark, what should we do with Massoud and the NRF against these terrorist organizations if, in fact, that's what they decided to do? What's your recommendation? What does this UW thing look like? What would you recommend to the President? I know that's a high-level uh, uh, question for you, but if you think about it, you got the experience to answer it. Forget about rank, forget about position. What would Mark advise the President of the United States to do? Oh, well, thanks, David. That's, uh, that's a pretty deep <laughs> position to be in. Oh, by the way, we were in Germany at the same time together as kids, 58 to 61. My dad was there you in, go. With an NCO in the artillery, and uh, we were stationed over there. It was interesting. Okay, going back to the to the situation. Well, quite honestly, uh, I would tell him that do not put any boots on the ground anywhere in the area. You can use the CIA and their assets and all that kind of stuff all you want to, but don't put any American boots on the ground over there unless unless you have an absolute commitment from the people that want us there, uh, that they have, uh, that they're willing to work and do the work themselves because, in my opinion, and I've got that in my book too, when Special Forces does UW, if they have to fire their weapons, they're in mission failure. Because their whole job is to train, organize, and send off and even go with them if they have to, uh, to do the jobs with the indige, but the indige, if they're not willing to commit to doing that and having the shadow government like in the side, Masood does have that, which is, he's already got a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in place, but uh, if if the people themselves are not willing to fight for themselves, then the very, and I think we got into this in uh Afghanistan, Iraq, and everything like that. Maybe we didn't read the tea leaves right. But uh, and the other thing I would tell him is if you do go and put boots on the ground, then you have to have the interagency 100% involved. And I think one of your other speakers talked about that earlier because if you do not have this whole thing integrated as a whole-of-nation deal, even if it's just supporting Masood, it's still got to be a whole-of-nation thing. I like those words that Dan said. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that is the only thing that's going to make it wor worth putting American soldiers' lives, blood, on, on, on the, at risk is the whole of the nation has to be behind them. And 
I've got a little quip here that I did in my book. I'll read it to you real fast about the uh, interagency. It says here, because I have a whole annex on the interagency process, but this is what I said. For those in the military, it is easy to be disgusted with the interagency process. It has no seeming discipline, no one in charge. The discussions seem petty and more like bickering and whining than an effort to accomplish a mission. The interagency process has seen, for the most part, is seen as a joke. Usually the agencies that would make up this process don't even wish to participate. Then when and if they do participate is with the strictest guidance from their, uh, to their representatives to ensure their agency's prerogatives are totally protected and enhanced regardless of the cost to the success of the operation. By design, there is no single decision maker in an interagency process except the president. And that, to me, is, is both the booger bear and the value of the interagency process is either we have the whole government come to a decision and support the operation, or we don't, and we don't do it. So that would be my my advice to him. And I think the interagency process, and there was discussions of that earlier, is an absolute mandatory thing for unconventional warfare. They have to be totally on bed. The shadow government has to be in bed with the interagency group that's set up to monitor what's going on in the UW arena. And they're all, and they're in there and they're working together. They're establishing their government is going to take over and all of the processes and linkages that go with that. It's, I know it's a complicated process, but, but that's, that would be my advice. And now word from our sponsors. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Here's your host, General Grange. I tell you, Mark, that's a great paragraph out of your book, and thanks for sharing that with the veterans out there. I agree with you, by the way, and uh, and and if we don't have unity of effort, which is a principle of war, you cannot succeed. 
And you mentioned the president. And see, that's why the president is not only the president of the people of the United States of America, but he's also the commander in chief. And he, you're right. He's the only one that really can force interagency cooperation. It's like a commander in the unit with all the disparate units under his command or her command and the different supporting groups. So, uh, right on on the unity of effort and you need mass of these agencies to, to accomplish the mission, another principle of war. And, uh, if it's not wholeheartedly uh, championed, then why put America's boots on the ground and lose precious blood without an end state in mind? So, well said, and I appreciate that. And uh, this discussion on unconventional warfare will continue with Ranger Doug. And I think there's a couple places in the world right now that we need to move and, and, and do unconventional warfare. Uh, you can pick the area of operation, the AO, but there's several to pick from. And there, it's a shaping, a shaping tool uh, for positional advantage for our country that we should use, but use the way that you just described. So, again, thank you, Mark. And uh, Ranger Doug, off to you. Hey, thank you, General. I, I kind of liken what you just did to the fact that you blew the dam, and now we have to figure out what to do with the water because I was going to build up to that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> okay, dams are a good unconventional target, but as Mark said, we don't want any American boots along with them unless they're there to just ensure that the fuses are tied correctly. Uh, but I would say this. You're absolutely right. I've been in many interagency meetings. You cannot get anything like unity of effort. They won't even talk about unity of purpose. And when you raise that, they yell at you. And, in fact, uh, they're waiting to jump in with budgets, timelines, measures of performance, measures of effectiveness, none of it controlled. The problem we have is those fights need to go on in the United States. When we go forward, it needs to be disciplined. And the thing we have today that we must remember is, although you could have a Franklin Roosevelt at the time of World War II, who actually, because Wilson was... President Wilson was basically unable to proceed in the, uh, the solution to World War I. Roosevelt was his guy who went over there, his avatar, so to speak, who learned everything about warfare and how to terminate conflict and so forth as a youngster while assistant secretary of the Navy. That's really what made him so capable as a president, in addition to several other great jobs that he had. Well, you know, we're not raising presidents the same way necessarily, and we're going to have presidents of many different stripes. I think one thing that really has to be done is that our senior uniformed officers have to develop the ability to give their advice, and once their advice is not heeded, they have to do what Harold K. Johnson said that he would have done if he had thought about it, about Vietnam, and that would have been, if you don't support the policy, as Sonny, as uh, Snuffy Smith said in that great video uh, during the Bosnian conflict, then it's time for you to make a statement by, just like former Air Force Chief of Staff did, Ronald Fogelman, when he couldn't support the discipline of Terry Schwalier. Over the episode at Cobar Towers, he simply resigned and didn't say anything. He went off and founded a company on porta potties and has had a great career fueling the NTC. That's the one thing we don't have right now is presidents of the same character strategically as Roosevelt. But the military has to move into that space. The president is still commander in chief, but they've got to find a way to inform the interagency process. And right now we're talking about joint officers when we really need interagency officers. That's my plug on that. But, Mark, we're going to go into then some of the things that make UW uh, such a potent force, and you've talked about some high-level aspects. Let's get into some things that you want to talk about from the book, 
And as I say, we're going to have the book plugged uh, as, as a, a link on the program. And uh, how about bringing us to the point where we're capable of deciding the things that you and Dave just talked about? Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. I've got – I want to read another – Another extract from my book, because I think it sets the stage for UW. It certainly does in my mind, and it's not necessarily in agreement with the current full definition of UW. But here's what I've got in the book, and it's unconventional warfare, part of it, and it's like the bottom line up front. Unconventional warfare is a U.S.-supported and maybe inspired insurgency and is total warfare for the indigenous population using every means at their disposal to to affect regime change of their current masters. These masters may be tyrannical government or an occupying power. To the indigenous population involved in UW, the survival of every man, woman, and child is at stake. To the indigenous population, this is revolt or insurgency. This is revolutionary warfare. Contrary to some of our conventional wisdom of the definition of UW, UW is not, and I say again, not something that is used to coerce or influence a regime. For the U.S. to approach our support to UW situation with the camouflaged intent of influencing or coercing rather than supporting the indigenous people in regime change is disingenuous, deceptive, immoral, and unethical. Because what we do is, if we just didn't say, okay, well, we don't like it anymore. We're pulling out. We have sentenced all of those people who were rose up to do UW with us to death. They're going to die. They're going to be executed. And what it is is commitment, is dependability, et cetera. And really what Mark did is he hit on – he didn't say it, but I feel that way about – even though it wasn't totally a UW effort, but let's just say it was – we we left what's happening right now in Afghanistan as an example is a failure in commitment, dependability, trust, confidence, wasta, whatever you want to call it, uh right. with the people of the of the nation. And terrible things are happening because of that. You know, economy of force can be UW. Uh, I mean it and that's my opinion. I mean it's a it's a, a terrific tool, but it has to have moral uh limits to it, dimensions to it that you follow through, uh, and it's usually for the long haul. Uh, it's a shaping activity. It's for the long haul. It really is for the people that you're supporting, and that's that's where I, I have I have I have an issue with some of the decision making, uh, many different presidential tours. So anyway, uh, I'll, I'll stop there. But the, the very interesting comment by Mark just then. I think what you are both saying is if you think about what we did over time, we actually ran a brilliant unconventional warfare campaign to seize Afghanistan and help it to be then governed by a whole new government we put in place, but not understanding the concept of whole of nation, meaning our nation, not just our government, because governments change. Our whole nation did not back that effort so that it was willing to last even as long as we did in Bosnia to ensure that a government that we overthrew, assisting the Afghans in doing it, would be stable and continue into the future. We failed to remember you cannot stop once you've unseated that government. And when we mirror imaged ourselves into that country by creating an army that was oriented on our methods and so forth, instead of an indigenously comfortable method that would be sustainable, we sentenced 
as you mentioned, those people to death. And I think that's one of the things we have to remember. We began the war in Afghanistan as an unconventional warfare campaign, and we lost sight of what we had done, and we became frustrated with the fact that they simply didn't get it. Well, there's thousands of years of development of our society separating them from understanding how we might like to do it. Yet still, a very large portion of that populace did come our way, and now we've squandered that. And we have to move into the future with a way to try to fix it. The uncertain thing to me is, can the enemy of my enemy is my friend adage actually work to help us draw the Taliban together and fight this common enemy in ISIS-K, as you mentioned, and Al-Qaeda, which is still there, the Haqqanis and so forth? Maybe after a while we see that, like the Vietnamese, the Afghan Taliban and others are reaching out to us to say, will you not come back and help us stabilize this place now that we've figured out a way to get along? So... That's my two cents on that. And General, good night. If you can join us later, that would be great. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Mark, let's go a little deeper into the book and, and let's talk about the phases of UW because, of course, the phases as they run allow you to actually begin a campaign and not necessarily be visible because there's much that goes on about organization where we could potentially line up that interagency process. How about that, Over? Well, that is that is very true, very true. The, uh, the phases of it are pretty not touching on this whole of nation issue because I don't know. It's, it's uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to find the words here. There are a lots of places we can go, lots of things we can do. But if we're going to actually do UW, then the people we're helping must take the lead. They must be willing to sacrifice. They must be willing to do the thing, and they must be willing to form a government, a shadow government, or whatever, uh, to work with our interagency process. And if they're not willing to do that, then we need to be very honest with them. We're not going to do UW, but we'll come up, come over there and help them with uh, their their 
I I guess IW stuff, uh, irregular warfare stuff, and and give them some weapons, and give them some uh, uh, drone support, intel support, whatever it might be. But uh, that that we're not putting boots on the ground or or our guys uh, lives on the straight on, on the at stake. You know, it goes back to a quote I've got, but this has this is serious business, and you know. It may be impossible for the United States to conduct unconventional warfare. Unconventional warfare just might fall within the purview of the politically incorrect and therefore can never become a viable tool for the United States. Because if you can't get the interagency process working, if you can't get uh, the uh, uh, support of the indig, and you've got to have the support of the indig right down to the women, children, and everybody else, because they're the ones that are going to pay the price for it, and they have to have the buy-in, then all we're doing is putting a finger in the bucket of the water, and when we pull it out, there's a few ripples in it, and it goes flat again. Okay. Well, I see that the current methods that we employ when fighting DOD lexicon, uh, there are phases zero through five, which describe uh, your, your periods during the conflict. And by the time you get to phase two, you're about to launch combat operations, which you conduct in phase three. Phase four, uh, conflict is generally over. You're moving to kind of a military-led peace solution. And phase five is when the government goes back to what it did and the embassy, the U.S. embassy, becomes, again, the president's representative and so forth. I see that there's probably a need for a, a Goldwater-Nichols-type reform within the interagency. And we need to take irregular warfare as an example and synchronize these various processes so that the phases actually support one another. In other words, if we were to run UW, it seems to me, as I look at those phases, it's possible to envision that continuum of phasing in unconventional warfare uh, fitting into um, the uh, concept that we employ uh, in uh, military operations. So, for example... In the, in the phasing of UW, phase one, preparation, phase two, initial contact, phase three, infiltration, phase four, organization, phase five, buildup, phase six, employment. So that's, that's employment of the force. And as you say, our people should only be there to ensure that the job gets done, providing intelligence, other support, maybe a company. But anytime, as you've said, somebody has to fire a weapon or trigger something, we're, we're on the road to failure. But that employment is the actual phase three of the conflict. And then transition would likely link up to phase four, which is where things go into a peace mode, you've won. But my, my point about Afghanistan, I think we took it through several phases of unconventional warfare. And then we tried to flip immediately to where we thought we had a government in place and attempted to pump it full of all of our ideas and mirror image ourselves. And we really didn't consider what would be sustainable in that environment once we withdrew. And then all the things we've heard about since, as far as ghost soldiers, you know, where warlords built up payrolls of soldiers that didn't even exist and pocketed the money. All of that for a lack of standards and auditing and other things that have to be done, assessments that had to be made that we would do in, in unconventional warfare, but apparently weren't done by anyone other than the, uh, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, the SIGAR, who's re released multiple reports over a decade or so that apparently had no reach within the, uh, the interagency. So do you think, uh, based on your time in SWIC and what you know about uh, Special Warfare Center and what you know now about preparation of the force, uh, that we're doing things about right at the training that we give people when they come through Special Forces education and training at Fort Bragg? Well, I have to say I do not 
think we are. I think we're treating them in the rote processes, greatly influenced by what we've done in the past 20 years. So I will, the, the word I will throw out that we have to embrace, we have to do it in peace, have heavily, is ethnography, the study of people. And that is where we failed because we never understood the people that we were, that were even our friends. We never, I mean, we thought that they wanted to fight like Americans fight. They never have in for the past thousand years. And that's not how they wanted to fight. They liked the toys. They liked the weapon systems. They liked all that kind of stuff. But their heart and soul, the ethnography of their culture, you know, in Afghanistan, very, very, uh, valley to valley, not to mention country to country. Uh, and we didn't tailor because we didn't have ethnographers of the knowledge or we didn't have our guys trained as ethnographers because it's a very, it's a tough learning curve, I understand, anyway. Uh, I did know one of the high-risk ethnographers and worked worked with her in some cases where she did some stuff, and, and it was absolutely brilliant, absolutely mind-boggling as, as, because they could tell you right down, you know, once they, once they spent time on the ground, did the study, learned the people, learned their, learned their culture, then understood them, then you didn't have the ugly American coming in, stomping all over the thing, thinking that they know what was best. At you, what you'd end up do, is then you're able to tailor everything. You tailor the people. You tailor the uh, interagency working group. You tailor everything that you've got to fit with that culture. Because if you go in there, that's that's why we can't win in Afghanistan and Iraq and those kind of places. Because we go in and try to make it and change their culture to our culture. We've not grasped that. You cannot do that. You have to learn their culture. And you have to learn to work with them in their culture. And then you, over time, maybe change some aspects of their culture to the better. But that's got to be them wanting to do it. It can't be shoved down their throats like we've been doing all over the world forever, I guess. But anyway, that's, uh, that, that, that to me is the key thing. They ought to have SWIC ought to be stood up again and, and have an entire school of uh, this this type in ethnography and learning cultures and learning how to deal with people and 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 that kind of stuff and when we don't do that we don't do that well at all. Uh, Ranger Doug, the the, the uh, I've really hit highlights of, of what, what I think is uh, is important in the UW arena and and the the problem is is that. There's only so much of it that we can fix in, in SWIC or fix in our own backyard. Well, so, Mark, is there anything more, uh, not just from your book, but from your vast experience in this area? Because you've provided some absolute jewels tonight, and not only at the level of the forces, but at the national level and the international level. Are there any more uh, aspects of, of your book and your experience that you might like to highlight here tonight? Thanks, Ranger Doug. I appreciate it because, yeah, there's there's several things that I would like to discuss. You know, again, I just want to reiterate, anytime we're talking about UW, uh, we can't be too fickle because UW means life or death to the people we're, we're working with. And if we pull our finger out of the pail of water and go home, they die. And we're seeing that in Afghanistan right now, and that was not a UW campaign. you got to do that and then... Going back to the whole of the nation and then go, uh, 
to the normal paragraph field order we have in the military and its commander's intent. And that commander's intent has to be verbalized somehow straight from the commander-in-chief all the way down and become working knowledge for right down to the lowest private or soldier or guy doing their job out there, particularly if you're working with the indige. And and that and you have to understand the intent and understand your role, and uh, in in those missions. And it may not be what you expect. You know, the uh, if we end up going into a UW mode to where we're we're not understanding the commitment to the indigenous people that we're working with, then uh, that's just. Uh, we see what we see in Afghanistan, and we will see that in the future in other places where uh, it, it comes apparent. We just looked at the Indies that we're working with as stowaways because we're just using them and manipulating them to uh, uh, do something uh, that's going to benefit us and basically to hell with them. Uh, we've got places around the world now to where uh, I agree that we can uh, – we can look at it. We should. Right now, every Special Forces A team should have a piece of dirt that they own. It does explain this in the book, that that's where they go. They're linked in with the ambassador or they're linked into where it is. And, and it, if their target area is in a denied area, then when they deploy, they deploy to the fringes on the outside of that and they start working their uh, networks to get information from their target area where they're going in and start building contacts and start working all of those things because we're not going to put people on the ground in North Korea. We're not going to put people on the ground in China. We're not going to put people on the ground in a lot of places. But you can work people that come out of there and know that area, train them, work with them, and, and filter them back in and support them in that manner. So, oh, so almost, I guess you would call it like what they used to <laughs> talk about the Russian sleeper agents. You know, you have them, you have sleeper UW capability in these towns. But again, it goes back to uh, ethnography. Not only do we have to have all of the training associated with, with UW, and we have to be able to understand the people that we're working with, and I think that's a big void in our uh, in our education that uh, that we need to. And I, but I, you know, talk about all of this in in my book, and I've got some, I've got a very detailed annex on that interagency operations that uh, was helped by Ambassador David Passage helped me with that, and he gets most of that. And as you know, he's a brilliant, uh, brilliant man, and he was uh, Polad down in uh, uh, SOCOM for a while, and now he's he's still active, he's still <laughs> he's still engaged. But yeah, that's. Uh, ethnography it is we we have to approach it from the knowledge of the people we're dealing with not just looking at them through our eyes but try to figure out how to look at them through their eyes no that's great so just to recap here our operational phasing of a campaign to dod involves seven phases oddly enough shape phase one deter phase two seize initiative phase three phase four dominate phase five stabilize phase Six, uh, enable civil authority, but there is also a phase zero that's not listed. That's before anything starts. Our unconventional warfare phases are preparation, number two, initial contact, number three, infiltration, number four, organization, number five, buildup, number six, employment, 
number seven, transition. Well, it seems to me that those six phases up to employment all occur in phase one, two, and three, where you seize initiative and then finally dominate in phase four. And by phase five, stabilize, and then six, enable civil authority. That's the transition phase. And in some way, I think we need to take the irregular warfare with unconventional warfare as a subset and marry that to the operational phasing of a campaign by DOD and then reform the interagency process through, as I mentioned, something like what we encountered with the Goldwater-Nichols legislation that occurred during the Reagan administration, not forgetting the the Cohen-Nunn amendment that gave us U.S. SOCOM. And uh, I'm going to turn some attention to that. Um, What do you think of that idea? The phasing in our government needs to be normalized so that everybody can talk from some kind of lexicon where they not share the same phasing, but they understand where each is in the phasing. And since UW is a whole-of-nation effort, uh, our, our understanding of what goes on in what phase really ought to be shared across the government, wouldn't you think? Ranger Doug, I agree 1,000%. And the key to that whole deal, though, is uh, the leadership on the civilian side of the house to bring uh, to bring us all together in the same mission set, same looking at what we're doing with same goals and objectives, and getting an interagency that may not always agree but can compromise with each other to make uh, things happen. And, uh, and, and, and honestly, be in there not just for their uh, watching out for their own little organization's prerogatives, but looking out for the greater good. Uh, maybe that's impossible for politicians. I don't know. But the, uh, that's, that is what it's going to take for, for us to be successful is to have that kind of, uh, that kind of coming together at the national level, uh, under the guidance of a commander in chief that can give the guidance down and then have the people execute that, that guidance on the civilian side as well as the military side. Uh, as the, uh, so yeah, uh, it, 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 it's, it's doable, but it's going to be very hard and we're going to need, uh, uh, I don't know, people are going to have to give up some, everybody's got to give up something for the greater good. And it's just when, when, when will they do that or will they do that, uh, for the interagency process? Uh, we can still do things with a, with a stumbling interagency process. I mean, we, Done things in the past with the stumbling interagency process, but as you, history shows, we have not been very successful at the end result in Vietnam, now in Afghanistan. Uh, so there's just, uh, if we can't figure out how to do that, then we're always going to be at risk of, uh, mumbling the operation. I think that's correct. I, I have recommended that the president needs a direct civilian representative overseeing the theater. And that person takes a kind of a plenipotentiary status over ambassadors and everything else. That person, man or woman, with the proper background, is designated to lead that operation and answers to the president directly, but has DOD and, and other elements of the interagency working for him or her. Uh, we, we did that with Bremer, uh, Ambassador Bremer, but we, we did it after beginning the operation, starting to, to, to end up with uh, General Garner and his party there. We didn't devote a senior civilian until it was really too late. And when he arrived, he wasn't, well, acclimated to the area and made some initial decisions that the person that you described having had an ethnographical 
understanding of the area might not have made. But what's done is done. Now we have to figure out how to move ahead and do better. Well, Mark, I would like to say uh, thank you for being with us tonight. Are there any things you would like to say in closing? Uh, Ranger Doug, yes, thank you very much. I, again, I want to thank you. I want to thank General Grange for uh, talking and letting me expose my, my viewpoint and uh, uh, push my book a little bit there. I really do appreciate it. I think, uh, I mean, it's got 576 pages of basically UW in some shape, form, or fashion. Uh, I think it'd be well worth a lot of, of people to take a look at it. I thank you again very much for having me, and I appreciate it, and uh, God bless all of you, and good luck. Yes, I, I had to tell you that I have two copies of your book, and I had loaned them both out, so I'm going to get another copy from the link you provided, and that way I won't let that one go. In fact, when I see you next time, I'm going to ask you to sign it for me. Gladly. Thank you very much. It be my honor. And I, I want to thank you also for your friendship, but also for your leadership and mentorship over the years. It's meant a lot to me and, and many others that I know, and we sincerely appreciated your rock-solid leadership in Haiti. You had to defend us, along with General Potter, against an interagency process that was not our friend. It was a wonderful thing to work there, and the group did a brilliant job. Thank you again, sir. I, I consider you, along with General Grange, to be national treasures, as well as uh, our earlier speaker, Doug Wise. I mean, I'm lucky to know people like you. And I have uh, some wonderful women in, in my group that... Uh, I regard the same way. They're just not on this program tonight. But again, thank you, and always God bless you and your family. And thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you very much. Good night. Okay, we're going to wrap up now. That was really a unique experience. That man, along with Doug Wise and General Grange, I regard as national treasures. And he possesses a kind of quiet strength that gave us the ability to succeed in a very difficult interagency environment in Haiti. And the thing about his quiet strength that was so impressive was his ability to say no appropriately when given things to do that he thought were not in our ballpark and ask for another decision. He persuaded people senior to him to follow along the way that he would prescribe and thus our unit was able to succeed spread over the whole country with dozens of detachments building the new security structure and humanitarian structure for the island. And we had gone in originally on the idea that there would be a major combat operation resulting in a lot of death and destruction. But due to the good offices of former President Carter, retired General Colin Powell, and former Senator Sam Nunn heading in there to convince the president of Haiti to abdicate, in a matter of 48 hours, the mission flipped on its head to become a regular unopposed insertion where people who were originally going to have to fight the Haitian authorities joined up with them to protect them from their own populace. This presented quite a lot of problems, but uh, the forces there under General Shelton and Task Force 180 got it right. Uh, we were lucky to have as our senior commander, uh, Brigadier General Dick Potter, who was an original in Delta, and his term, Jump the Fence, was perfect for that operation. Uh, not only was Colonel Boyett instrumental there, but of course he commanded and staffed uh, a number of organizations and his approach to things infused thousands of uh, soldiers over the years, uh, people from other services as well. And the great thing about it was he spent the major part of his time ensuring that we were well grounded in unconventional warfare because all of the other disciplines within uh special operation capabilities really do derive from unconventional warfare and those skills were 
those that enabled these detachments to gain control of the armed forces and police detachments and so forth and resulted in few casualties. We lost one soldier to a hostile incident. We had some wounded and injured, but overall uh, it was a very successful operation if you look at the tactical sphere. So we've had quite a program tonight. We heard from a tremendous intelligence professional. We heard about a wonderful infantryman who went through 20 years of combat, major actions in a number of places, years overseas, as many of our other guests have said, and so did Mr. Wise. Uh, and then, obviously, with uh, Mark Boyett and Chuck DeCaro, we got different flavors for a number of different aspects of irregular warfare. All very important. All very important to not only doing things through, with, and by, but uh, having some effect on the old hearts and minds, because you really do have to do that. In fact, in order to defeat an enemy in any engagement, you have to be able to convince the enemy to stop fighting. In other words, you have to withdraw their will to fight. That's a psychological process that requires a knowledge of what motivates the enemy to fight to cause them not to fight. It can be done non-geographically, but it's very helpful if you have them trapped in their own country, like the Germans and Japanese. But if they're not, if they're an amorphous foe, like... Uh, foe, rather like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, it's much more difficult. So, thank you once again for joining us tonight for our discussion of irregular warfare. Uh, the staff here at Veterans Radio R wants to wish you the best for the holidays. Don't forget our other two shows, Roll Call, hosted by Kenny DeCamp, and Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin, all on Veterans Broadcast Network. Other than that, Ranger Doug signing off. Good night. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Veterans Radio Hour. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Veterans Radio Hour name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement or of opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. 
contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Find out how you can be a guest on one of our upcoming shows. Go to our website at nifv.org. Click on VBN and then click Submit a Story. Tell us about the story you think others would like to hear.